I would just like to welcome uh, Mr. Meller. He has got to be one of my top five all-time preachers. If I was to have a list of preachers who could also rap, he would definitely be my number one. Please give it up. <laughs> give a Church Central weekend away. Welcome to Johnny Meller. Wow. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, I'll have you guys hosting for me next time I preach. That's really good. <laughs> Thank you. How funny. Okay. If you've got a Bible, could you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Um, we're reading verse 11 to 21 in a minute. <laughs> um, kingdom of God. We are continuing our theme. So far we've seen that the kingdom, God's kingdom, is about his rule. Primarily the rulership of God through Christ. We've also seen that we live at this odd time in history. It's a strange time when there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God is most expressed through a visible community, through the church living in the world. Okay, And uh, Andy, that, that arm sweeping thing, that was that video the other day, circle, circle, subset if you're a mathematician. Okay. Andy spoke to us yesterday uh, passionately, profoundly about how we should live together as subjects of the king within the church. Really important, citizens of the king, how does that work as we live within the kingdom of God? But the question remains, how should we, as citizens of God's kingdom, relate to those in the kingdom of the world? Okay, There was a f- firm line drawn in that video, kingdom of God, at the moment, kingdom of the world. Yeah, the kingdom of God will become the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of God, whichever way you want to put that. But right now we're in this strange time. How do we do that? How do we relate? And that's what I want to talk about today. But before we get into it, I've just asked Rach, can I just have this mic? Rach, can you pray for us? Uh, I never, I'm colorblind, which doesn't help with these. Yeah, red means on. That's very odd. Anyway, uh, (laughs) Rachel, go for it. Father God, thank you so much for how kind you are. Thank you for what you've already given us this weekend, which is just immeasurable and vast. Thank you for the time together that we've spent as family, getting to know one another and building community. God, so I just pray for this morning. I pray that you'd give us more. I pray for, um, I pray for soft hearts ready to be pierced by the double-edged sword of the Bible, God, Amen. that you'd use Johnny well, that his words would, would pierce us where we need to be pierced and would comfort us where we need comfort, God, that they'd, we'd go out changed people as a result of what Johnny's got to say to us this morning. I pray he'd hear from you, God, that your presence would fall on him and on us right now, Jesus. Come and make yourself known. You're so welcome here. We're so ready to hear for what you have to say to us. We're ready to be sent and to go, ready to be equipped, God. So I speak on behalf of all the people in this room, and I say we're open and we're ready to hear from you. We're excited for what you have in store for us and for Birmingham as a result of this morning and this weekend. Come and move, Jesus. Amen. Thanks very much. I'll hand that back over here. You can deal with the colours of that. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. This is what Paul writes. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, 
We regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a passage that is dense. It's got all sorts of phrases on their own that we treasure, okay? Things about new creation, about what Jesus did on the cross, about all sorts of things. But all together, it hits you. It's like, whoa, what's Paul trying to communicate here? And so to start off, I just want to decode slightly and hone in in this passage because there's one bit I really want to focus on. And I also want to say as well, we, we will be talking about the kingdom, but what Paul's talking about here is he doesn't use the words we've used so far. He doesn't use the words kingdom and king and all that sort of stuff, but he is talking about exactly the same sort of thing. So I want to show you what that means before we go uh, any further. What's Paul on about here? Well, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. Okay, it's his second, the sequel to Corinthians 1. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians, uh, and his main concern in this part of the letter to the Corinthians is he's talking to Christians, and he, he's trying to actually calling the more errant members of the Corinthian church kind of back to God, okay? He's talking to Christians to say, come on, come back to God, and even to be reconciled to Paul and the message he's bringing, okay? But as he's talking to Christians as people of the kingdom, he draws on some really general principles for how actually uh, people need to be, the people in the world need to be reconciled to God as well. So verse 18, for example, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, okay? Now, it's language that many of us would be familiar with, but we just need to kind of make sure we're on the same page here. What is he on about? Well, he's saying that, that Jesus reconciled the world back to God, okay? And that, that means that Jesus made a way for the world, for all of us who were estranged from God and separated from God, to come back into relationship with God, to be friends with him again. That's what reconciliation means, to become friends again, okay? And it's not the same words as we've heard before, but that is the message of the kingdom, in, in one way or another. It's put in a slightly different way, but it is the message of the kingdom. What he's saying is Jesus came to a people who'd rebelled against the king and therefore had moved away from the kingdom of God to be brought back into the kingdom from the kingdom of the world. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 1.13. It says, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of the world, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of God. Okay, The reconciliation is a bringing back into the kingdom. So, according to Paul, we as Christians have been reconciled to God through Jesus. We've been brought back into the kingdom of God. But actually now, we don't just get to put our feet up and bask in this good fortune we've had to find ourselves in the right, the winning team, so to speak. No, no, we've got a job to do, Paul says, and it's, it's here. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Okay? We now, as Christians in the kingdom of God, are to go into the kingdom of the world and tell them about this wonderful possibility. That there is a transfer on offer. They can go from their kingdom with their king to a better kingdom because there is a better king. And that's what we do as we go out. And he uses this image that I'm going to focus on. It's one word that I want to focus on in verse 20. 
What does that mean? How do we do that? Well, he's got a word for us. Very helpful. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Yeah. <laughs> Some of you younger ones don't know what that means. You young'uns who pay us on offerings in bitcoins and things like that. You know, well, look at Ferrero Rocher ambassadors for that. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How do we as citizens of the kingdom of God relate to the world? We are ambassadors of the kingdom. That's what we are. And uh, I want to rest on this word for our time together. Just to get us all up to speed, I'm going to explain this a little bit more as we go along. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who represents one country to the people of another country. Put more flesh on those bones, and we will as we go along, but that is essentially what an ambassador is. And we are called to live as ambassadors in regards to the kingdom of God and the kingdom uh, of the world. Okay? So let's look, at, let's look at that. We're going to explore that word and what Paul means uh, today. And I want to ask two questions. I want to ask the question why should we live as ambassadors? It can be difficult in some ways, so why would we bother? And two, how do we live as ambassadors? And that's, that's, uh, what we, that will be our time up, and then we'll worship God together, okay? Why then? What's our motivation here? Um, uh, why should we live as ambassadors? Well, today, if you were an ambassador for the British government, a uh, quick search of the, uh, from Google found this out for me, uh, you would receive a salary of between 100000 and £200,000 a year, which is nice. So I guess for British ambassadors, the question why is pretty self-explanatory in that sort of sense. Um, it must be said, the pay financially for ambassadors of the kingdom, not quite so high, although one day we will receive even more, uh, I'm sure. But right now then, we're saying, well, what is our motivation? Why do we do this? right now. And Paul's motivation, he makes it clear in verse 14 of the passage uh, that we've read. Christ's love compels us. Why should you listen to this? Why do we care? Well, we've got church. We can, we can do things in church. We love meetings like this. This is, this is what I want. <laughs> Some of you might not think this, but this kind of weekend we're together with Christians who do things this way. Let's just have this. Why do we bother going out there? Christ's love compels us to. Okay. We go because our king loves the people of the world. Some of you might think, well, done, good, that's enough for me, fantastic, let's move on. Let's go to the how, please, like that. But I want to rest here for a minute because actually that's, that needs a bit of unpacking, you see. Think about ambassadors. Uh, in Paul's day, the ambassador would go from the emperor, probably, for the Roman ambassador, uh, from one person, and they would represent that one person in a place where that person couldn't be. So that it's not like Donald Trump who could just phone up and phone up the Taiwanese government and say, yeah, let's be friends and ruin everything for everyone, okay? Uh, they can't communicate that, okay? Anyway, because um, they can't be there. So the ambassador goes as the emperor, and they have to have an interchange where they have to be the emperor. Like, they ask a difficult question. You, you want to be, oh, it's like you can't be out of character. You, you have to still be the emperor because the emperor can't be there. And therefore, the ambassador needed to know their king inside out. They couldn't just have a surface vague knowledge of kind of what makes the king tick and let's wing it, okay? That's not going to work. And as ambassadors for our king, we have to do the same. We can't have a vague, oh, God loves the world, so let's just go. No, let's dig a bit deeper because we've got a job to. We have to know our king, okay? So I want us to talk a bit about this. And I think there's three things we have to understand about the love of God for the world, okay? The first point is this. It might sound obvious to say, but you'll see why I'm underlining this in a second. God does love the world, okay? Say it after me. God does love the world. That was with me, which is what I meant, so well done. Okay, very good. John 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world. 
for God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave his most precious son so that we could be uh, saved, so we wouldn't have to perish, okay? Now, if we were talking about God's love for us as Christians, that does it. Love, that's it. Motivation, done. We understand. We're talking about how does God feel about us as Christians, okay? Love pretty much does it because as God's children, as citizens of his kingdom, Love is pretty much a summary completely of how God feels about us. His favor is always on us. He works for our good always, okay? But you know what? While I'm not going against what I've just said, it's a little bit more complicated when we come to the kingdom of the world. Because yes, God does love the world, point one. But secondly, God also in many ways is utterly opposed to the people who live in the kingdom of the world. Might sound strange to some of you, but I'll explain what I mean. God is utterly opposed to the people of the world. When you look around the Bible, you'll see some things and some of God's feelings that don't seem to square very easily with that word love. If you notice this, they're not rare, they pop up quite a lot. Words like wrath, words like anger, words like judgment, words like oppose. God opposes the proud. And gives grace to the humble. Can you think about that for a second? God's, we're Christians, God's favours on us. What does that mean? He, 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 he kind of pushes us in a good direction. He's always for us. Let's imagine a different situation. Let's imagine God opposing you. I'm going this way. This is the way of my life. God stands in the way. No way. I'm not. I'm going to undermine your efforts in this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is a sense of opposition for anybody who's living in the kingdom of the world. God is directly opposed to the God of this world, Satan, and those who willingly serve that God are not separated from that hostility, whether they realize what situation they're in or not. God does love the world, but God in many ways is also opposed to people in the kingdom of the world. How on earth do you square those two things? Is it just he wakes up one day and he kind of feels nice to people and then he's not so nice the next day? We worship a schizophrenic God. I mean, is that how we put that together? No, of course not. I think we can put it together, and that's the third way. God's love for people means he wants them to escape from the kingdom of the world. That's it. God's love for people is he wants them to escape from the kingdom of the world. I want you to imagine a situation for me. I have to use your imagination here. I want you to imagine there is a country that's ruled by a king. Okay, hard for us. We live in Let's imagine the setup. Okay, I think we can do that from fairy stories and from ancient cultures and all that sort of things. Um, There's a country and there is a coup in that country. And the king is driven from power into exile in a neighboring country that borders that country. Okay, Now let's imagine uh, this this king was totally good. He'd done nothing to deserve this coup. He ruled perfectly, ruled wisely, ruled righteously. And the people who did the coup were completely wicked. They were awful. It was, it was no good reason for this coup, but they succeeded and they ousted the king. And uh, the people were behind this coup. Although they were ruled well, and there were some people who were at the, the cutting edge who actually did the ousting, the people were behind, yeah, get rid of the king. Yeah, we want to get rid of him. We didn't like him anyway. You know? So the people are in on the coup. However, when the new government comes in, they systematically oppress this people, as the king would have expected would have happened, and the people are lapping it up. They don't even realize what's happening to them, but they're being oppressed, they're being dehumanized, they're being degraded. And the king is watching from the neighboring country, and he's watching what's happening to his country, and it's paining him. He's looking, he loves his country. 
and repeatedly attempts to kind of get back in through peaceful means to resolve things. But every time things are thrown back in his face. So he resorts finally to the only means available to win back his beloved country. And he declares war on his old country. But before he sends in the soldiers and the warships and the bombers, because he's not going half-hearted here. This is a serious business. He's going all guns blazing, literally in this case. Uh, He does one thing. He he sends out a message to everyone in his old country. I imagine kind of a plane goes by, drops flyers. They used to do that, didn't they, in war, I think. But he sends a message out to everyone, however you want to imagine that happening. And he tells them two things. On this flyer, there's two pieces of information. One is he makes very clear what he's about to do. He says, look, I've tried a number of things, but I'm going to win back my country, you know, and I will level the place to the ground if necessary. I'm not holding back here. I've tried, you know what, but I'm not, I can't stand by and put up with this, number one. Point two on the flyer is this, that he secured a border crossing between the two countries that he's got protected, and he's got a map on the flyer saying, you can go there. It's absolutely fine. There's a border. We will let you in. Just come. Just, you can get out. I've found a way to do it. I've found a way for you to cross over. Please, would you come out of the country before it's too late? Okay, and that's on on the flyer. I think that's a bit like the relationship between God and the kingdom of this world. We should be under no illusion. The kingdom of this world is wicked. It is corrupt and it is utterly opposed to God. And if you think by God I mean some sort of religious concept... I don't mean that. I mean God as in the, the personification of all that is good. I'm not saying he's a con- he's a real being, but he's goodness. Okay? And the kingdom of the world is opposed to goodness. It's utterly corrupt. Okay? And God in his righteousness is therefore opposed to the kingdom of the world and hostile to it. But he loves the people of that kingdom, even though they don't deserve it. Even though we didn't deserve it. And his love for them means that he's made a way for them to escape the hostility through Jesus. There's a border crossing. People can leave the kingdom of the world. They can come into the kingdom of God. They can move from a place where if you stay there, you will experience God's coldness, his distance, and in some senses, his opposition. But you don't have to stay there. That's what God's love for people means. Paul puts it like this in Romans 2.4. He sums up God's kindness. He says, what's God's kindness? God's kindness leads you towards repentance. It's not God's kindness. It's not on people in the world. I'll make everything go their way. Or I smile whenever I look at them. It's like, I've made a way out. You can get, you can repent. You can change your mind. You can change sides. I I love you. But if you stay where you are, well, I don't know. No, the message of God's love is not that he's a big softy. His love means that he set up signposts out of the kingdom of the world before he raises the whole thing to the ground. Serious business. And guess what, guys? We are those signposts. That's what happened. We're the signposts. Our ambassadorial role is an urgent role. And it's primarily a plea to people to change sides before it's too late. I recognize that this talk won't sit easily with many of us. Um, in our culture at the moment, talk of things like this, anger, wrath, judgment. You know what? Some people say, no, that was 18th century Christianity. Look, we're a different place now. This isn't how we talk. But you know what? This isn't fringe theology. If you just read your Bible from cover to cover, you'll come across this in most pages. We might not like it, and I, you can see why this is harrowing. I'm not, I'm not saying I love these bits. These aren't the verses that get put on fridge magnets in my house, Okay. 
don't have fridge magnets in my house. Anyway, <laughs> but, but this is, we've got to weigh up. We have a king. The whole message of the king, we submit to the king and we respect his word then. We can't pick and choose the bits we like. That's, complete, that's not saying Jesus is Lord. Look at Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5 here, verse 20. What do we do as a result of this? How do we do our role? What's the spirit behind it? We implore you. We beg you. This is the language of being on your knees. We beseech you. Be reconciled to God. Get out. It's not saying, hey, you know what? Uh, you should come to Jesus. He'll make your life way better. You know, your life will be much better. No, that's not it. It's the kind of language, you, you, the kind of spirit you'd use to get someone out of a burning building. That's imploring. Someone's saying, yeah, the natural disaster is about to come. You have to leave now. There is an urgency to this. Our role as an ambassador is an urgent role. And so with this sense of urgency, many Christians would pick this up, and they think, okay, then it's an urgent role. Therefore, I'm going to do the task in the tone of urgency too. It's an urgent role, so I'm going to, it's an obvious thing. I'm, therefore, I'm going to be urgent in how I deliver it, okay? And the classic, and so they would shout, and they would threaten, and they would scold, and get it like you would with someone in a burning building. The classic example would be a kind of fiery street preacher, you know, the old days, they had the end is nigh placards that are now so retro that that would be cool to do. So, you know, I'm thinking of this. I don't know how you do this, but, uh, and they, but nowadays they just shout at people's father. See, megaphones are in. You can't hear anything they're saying, but anyway, uh, kind of shouting, escape the wrath of God, escape the wrath of God. Okay, you might have seen those guys. And I'm, I'm sure in this room we'd have all sorts of opinions uh, on those sort of, that sort of style of things. Um, I think I could say pretty squarely, as Church Central, uh, we don't put much resources into that sort of thing. We, we wouldn't tend to favor that as a frontline form of how we would do evangelism. But um, I want to be clear that I, why that would be, I've got no, I, I think definitely I don't think we should mock those people. I don't think we should say, oh, how silly. They've caught something quite important, which is, this is urgent. I mean, that's it. We, we shouldn't we know which is on our team <laughs> with these sort of things, okay? But uh, my problem is not with those sort of things that they're over the top or such talk is extreme. Oh, that's not why I don't go out and do that stuff, you know? My problem with it is I don't think it works. That's the issue. <laughs> I just don't think it's effective. I don't think it's going to get many people out of the kingdom of the world into the kingdom. Just because a role is urgent, it does not mean it needs to be conducted with a spirit of urgency. Which might sound a bit strange, but think about this. Let's imagine that you're in your office at work, and your office, let's imagine, is 10 stories high, okay? And as you're working, you gaze out the window, and you see to your horror, there is a colleague of yours on the balcony about to leap to his death, commit suicide, okay? So ask this question. Question to the audience, not a rhetorical question. Uh, is your intervention urgent at that point? Yes, I think it's reasonably urgent. However, if you go about your intervention with a spirit of urgency, I would suggest you may be ineffective in your goals. If you go out threatening <laughs> and shouting, ah, no, 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 they're probably going to jump. I mean, you scare them to death more than anything, okay? You know, no, it's a, you need a different tone, even though the job's urgent. You, the two things don't necessarily go together. As ambassadors... We need to understand our king's expectations and how he does things. There's an urgency. We cope because of his love for the world. But you know what? We also need great wisdom as how we apply that so that people will actually come into the kingdom. It's not good enough just to shout and say, look, I've done my job. Okay, I've done it. I've told you. I'm off. But that's not good enough. Christ's love compels us not just to shout and say it, but to think, is this working? Let's reflect. What works now? Let's go again. That didn't work. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Because we've got to get them out. 
It's urgent, but that means we need to be wise. So let's turn now uh, to look at how. How do we then perform this ambassadorial role? How should we live as ambassadors? In a recent book, a guy called Sir Christopher Meyer, who's a former British ambassador in Washington, he lists the qualities that a modern-day diplomat, a British, a British ambassador, uh, needs to do their job properly today. Okay? And he says, these are the three key things he thinks you need to have. So if you're after that 100, £200,000 salary, listen up. Okay? You can do, it. You do these three things. Firstly, an insatiable curiosity about other countries, number one. Two, willingness to spend half your working life outside the UK, number two. Number three, a profound knowledge and understanding of some foreign countries. Okay, so you're scribbling that down for that big pay packet, okay? Insatiable curiosity about other countries, willingness to spend half your working life outside the UK, profound knowledge and understanding of some foreign countries. I think that advice is brilliant advice for ambassadors of the kingdom. I want to tell you what I mean. I think we can split those two things, three things up into two things. Firstly, as ambassadors, how do we do it? We must be live, willing to live in the world. Okay? We must be living to, willing to live in the world. Willingness to spend half your working life outside the UK. Look, I'm not giving percentages on it. I'm just saying where we live is in the world as ambassadors. We are not of the world. We are aliens and strangers in the world. Some of you will be more comfortable with this than others. But where's our home? Have a look around you guys. Okay? This is our home. We're at home here. This is the church. One day our home will be the new heavens and new earth. The kingdom... This is the fullest expression of the kingdom. Not this particular church, but the church, okay? This is our home. But guys, ambassadors of the kingdom are not homeboys. They're not homegirls. We don't stay at home. We live in the world. Come on, Johnny. This encouragement. I love this encouragement, guys. This side is doing great, really. Anyway, <laughs> I don't have the gift of encouragement, so it's fine. I can do it. So in the Bible, when something needs to be underlined, often... God, the Holy Spirit, inspires different people to say the same thing. And in the New Testament, you've got the three big ones all say this, that we live in the world. Jesus, Peter, Paul, the writer of the New Testament. You could have John, would have been the complete set, but you know, can't have it all, can you? Okay, Jesus said we should live in the world. John 17, 15, preaching last week at South, next week in the North and West. You can hear it again, though, uh, or you can have a little taster, okay? This is what Jesus prays before he dies. My prayer, Father, is not that you take them out of the world, his followers, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus didn't want to take it out of the world. He was very clear on this. No, no, they need to be in the world. Paul's sentiment, exactly the same. Kind of quite complicated passage in 1 Corinthians 5, the first letter to the Corinthians. Paul's talking about uh, how the, he doesn't want the Corinthian church to tolerate sin within the church community. And he says that even in some cases, there are some people in the church who are Christians, who call themselves Christians, but they do certain, they, they're living very far away from God's standards. And he says, in some cases, don't even associate with them. Avoid those people. Quite a heavyweight passage. But then what he says is his mind goes to this, goes, wait a minute. They might misunderstand me. It's what's happening in his head. You can see it in the passage. And he clarifies this. Look, clear. I want to be clear. I don't mean people who aren't in the church who are living like that. Now, that's how they live. They're in the kingdom of the world. I mean, people who are in the church. Don't, not, don't avoid people outside who live like this. And then he writes this, 1 Corinthians 5.10. He says, in this case, you would have to leave the world. And you can actually go, and of course, we wouldn't do that because you know this. No, no, we don't leave the world. It wasn't an option for Paul. Even how serious sin was, he said, yeah, but you don't leave the world. You don't want it in the church. We don't tolerate it in the church. We show grace, but we also, there's some lines here in the world. No, we live in the world. 
Peter puts it perhaps most clearly, 1 Peter 2 verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, what terminology is important, I would uh, recommend you not calling your workmates pagans. Some will like it, okay? Summer solstice is near. They'll like it. Those guys who took a day off work that day, okay? Uh, But pagans is people in the kingdom of the world. People aren't Christians, okay? Do you see? Do you see the thing? Our role of ambassadors involves speaking to people. I'm not talking much about that today, but I'm not saying this is, we're getting rid of speaking. No, it's something different. Of course, we tell people the gospel. We we witness. we, We use our mouths. We take opportunities, but at the same time, it involves, tel- uh, it involves being with people. It involves more than that. It involves living slap bang in the middle of the world, among the pagans. For me, I-, I found this out years ago when I went from being a full-time church worker to a full-time secondary school teacher. Okay? And what happened was I-, I worked for what was then called West Birmingham Family Church, which is a, a wonderful institution that had a change of name since, many of you know. Um, and I-, I was... I was just kind of, I was a junior worker, I was finding my way, and I, I, I got involved with lots of evangelists. I, in my mind, I was the church evangelist. I don't know if anyone else thought that, but that was, I wanted a badge. I wanted it on my desk, church evangelist. And if you think of evangelism, I did all the evangelism stuff. I did most of the stuff you would have thought I mentioned some already. I was, I was in the street. I was on New Street. I was I, speaking to people. I tried to tone down the wrath every now and again, but it did get in, okay? I didn't have a megaphone either, but anyway... Um, I did that. I gave out tracts. I knocked on people's doors. I ran alpha course. I did all the evangelist stuff, all of those sort of things. And uh, you know what? Uh, it's quite possible there are people in the room today who would have uh, come to faith even indirectly from some of those things. So that wasn't a complete waste of time. But I will be honest with you, uh, it was incredibly frustrating. And it was incredibly frustrating because of the response. People were so cold. It wasn't people were being rude to me. Like people weren't throwing stuff at me or punching me or anything. That would have actually been, I could have come back and been, yeah, you know. Got put in prison once, but that was a different story. You have to come back to me. <laughs> That's true. Um, but they were cold. They, did, they, just, didn't, they just didn't care. <laughs> they just didn't care. And basically, it came to a point where I needed to move on. So after that frustrating time for me, it was, I moved on. Some of you would have been around. Then I became a secondary school teacher. And as a secondary school teacher, I found that job hard too, work shy as I am. But in this case, it was hard for a different reason. It was hard because it, uh, teachers, teachers, put your hands up. Round of applause. <laughs> teachers, maximum respect. I jump ship, I'm afraid, guys. But uh, as a teacher, I found out, as you will, it's totally time-consuming. More than that, it's totally mind-consuming. Wake up on a Wednesday morning, seven, year seven lesson planned. Oh, I haven't got my photocopies off to the office. Did I give my slip? No. A-level. Oh, Thomas Aquinas is here on the conscious. I haven't quite got that. Okay, let's do this. And I've got this discipline issue. He didn't come to my detention. Ah, mind-consuming. And I found that I really needed to pay attention to doing my job. The thing I was employed to do is a massive surprise, okay? <laughs> and uh, it meant that I didn't have the mental space to be able to turn every conversation around to Jesus. I really struggled. I was like, look, I can't, I've got to just do my employed job. I don't have those opportunities now like I thought I was. But I know it's a really funny thing. I was a more effective ambassador for Jesus in that school, rarely sharing the gospel, honestly, rarely sharing the gospel than I was as a full-time church evangelist. I got letters from kids saying, thank you so much, Mr. Mello. You've convinced me God exists. I just taught them the syllabus. So other people had taught them that syllabus, and they thought the opposite thing. 
That's what he said to me. I had a kid uh, come into the corridor one day. Look, so I've, I've never read the Bible, but I heard you're a Christian. Oh, can you talk to me about this? And uh, uh, people saying to me at the end, look, I've, you have completely changed the way. Amazing thing. You've completely changed the way I see Christians. For the better. <laughs> it needs to be added. <laughs> I was just amazed. Like, wow, really? I saw more people come to faith in Jesus in my job, rarely sharing the gospel, than I did as a church evangelist. I said a bit, but I did not say a lot. What happened? How did that happen? You know what happened? I was there. I was living in the world. I wasn't just visiting. I wasn't shouting from behind a fence. Come on, come over here. Hide. And I was getting involved in people's lives. I was letting people into my life. I was going to the Christmas parties, went to the summer work barbecues, went to the drunken nights out on Broad Street, sober as a judge. Thank you. <laughs> I was taking my work seriously. <laughs> what I was doing and what I saw at that time is I was just trying to live out the values of the kingdom that Andy talked about yesterday in the world. That's all I was doing. And people, I've got to say, people really liked it. They thought there's something different here. And they liked it. They warmed to Jesus through it. Listen, you could give all the answers to all the apologetics questions as clearly as you want. You can share your testimony with clarity and brevity and give the gift of the bridge to life diagram with perfection on a napkin. Okay, you can do all of that stuff. If you are not living in the world, what people will tend to hear is a disembodied message that will sound like an advertising slogan. And people hate advertising slogans and they run a mile. Is your advertising slogan better than the ones I see on the telly? Is it shinier than the ones I see on the telly? Is it promising instant gratification like the ones I see on the telly? Well, you know what? Then I think we need something else here. The power of the gospel is not only in its wisdom as a message. It is in that wisdom, but it's not only there. The power of the gospel, I think, primarily is in its ability to change our lives and our whole way we look at the world. To bring us peace in situations of stress. To give us self-control in times of incredible temptation. To help us forgive those who hurt us. To help us to value other people rather than just everything being about us. And so often, many of us, we don't even notice we do it. But we're hiding away in the church and nobody is seeing it. No, we don't just tell people stuff as ambassadors of the king. We show people stuff. We live among the pagans. We show them our lives. So we live in the world, but we also must look to understand the world uh, as well. My last point, uh, Christopher Mayer's two other qualifications for British ambassador were insatiable curiosity about other countries and a profound knowledge and understanding of some foreign nations. Actually, being in the world is more than simply being present. <laughs> Ambassadors are called to show an interest in the country they're sent to. You know that? For ambassadors into the kingdom of the world, the tr- same should certainly be true of us. And uh, this might sound odd to some of you, is what I'm about to say, because the church generally in our nation has gone in completely the opposite direction here for many years on this one. The culture of our world has been viewed with a combination of suspicion, fear, and scorn by Christians for many, many years. And for good reason, actually, in many ways. Okay, But because of that, what we've done is gone, no, don't have anything to do with culture, okay? The thinking of the world, the arts of the world, the culture of the world, you know, you know what I mean? So we're going to 
no, don't touch that, it's murky. And what we'll do instead, we're going to make our own version of that culture completely sanitized. And it's called Christian culture. And so we have our own books and we have our own music. And recently, we've even developed our own film industry. Big budget films with proper actors in and everything. Okay? Christian culture. And what's happened? We haven't just taken ourselves out of the world physically. We've taken ourselves out of the world intellectually and emotionally as well. Well done. Sorry for the sarcasm, but what's happened? Well, this is what's happened. Who would have guessed? We've lost the ability to communicate with the very people we're sent to, that we're ambassadors to. We're supposed to be winning from the kingdom. We don't even speak their language. When you love someone, you listen to them. Have we been listening to our culture? No, we haven't even started. No, I'm not listening to that. No, it's got that word in. No, no, won't touch that. Oh, no, get away. No, that's not how you love. You listen, you empathize, and then you implore. No, there's a better way. But if you miss out the first bit, the imploring will simply be patronizing. I want to think of examples in the Bible. Think of Solomon. Solomon, this wise king, 1 Kings 4, 29 to 30, it says this. God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. In fact, his wisdom exceeded that of all the wise men of the east and the wise men of Egypt. We probably know that if you know anything about Solomon, very wise chap. But I don't know if you knew this, he wasn't just wiser than the Arabic and Egyptian wise men. He built upon their wisdom. Did you realize this? When you look at ancient other wisdom texts at a similar time, Solomon's been reading the sages from Arabia and Egypt. He's been reading them. And he takes their thoughts and he builds on them and he grows them. And that's what we get in Proverbs. Solomon engaged with the ideas of the cultures of the kingdom of the world. He became wiser for it and then he used it for the kingdom of God. Think of Daniel. Daniel was exiled to Babylon and all that happened to him for a number of years was he was force-fed Babylonian culture. I want you to know something about Daniel, if you know the story. This is the guy who is not afraid to put his hand up and stand up for what's right, even if it costs him his life. Okay, we see it on a number of occasions. He'll just say, look, I ain't doing it. Sorry, feed me to the lions and I don't care. I'm following God. So what does he do when they stuff Babylonian culture down his throat? Just for a moment, think about this. Babylon is the culture of the world that is now known in scriptures, being the, the, the example of the kingdom of the world. The worst possible example. It's like a, a byword for all that's bad about the kingdom of the world. Think about what Daniel was feeding on. The language and literature of Babylon. He, had to, uh, he was given crash course in that stuff. Think of the stuff he was coming against. Did he say, no, lions for me, please? No, no, no. He ate it up with gusto. And what did he do? gained a profound knowledge and understanding of Babylonian culture, and he used it for the kingdom of God. It's the story of Daniel. Think finally of Paul. Paul um, went to Athens in Acts chapter 17. Athens, the heart of Greek culture, and he's invited to speak in a place called the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was a court, very important court in, in Athens, in the Greek culture as capital, and uh, it was also a place where important ideas were debated and hit to and fro and stuff like that. And I think the least we can say is this. You would not be able to hold your own in the Areopagus unless you had a pretty thorough knowledge of the philosophers, of the artists, of the culture of the day. That's where the centre of that cultural place was. It was like the Tate Modern or, or a place like that, you know. But he went in there and he spoke. 
And what does he do as he speaks in Acts 17? He starts quoting the very poets of the Athenians to them. He hadn't just looked in a kind of manual, oh, here's a quote. He's a man who knew this stuff. He's a man who had a profound understanding of this culture. Can you see? Paul, Daniel, Solomon. They lived out in different ways, but all of them in one way or another understood their role of ambassadors into the kingdom of the world. They did not feed exclusively on the cultural products made by God's people, but they developed a wise and unabashed curiosity into the culture of the world, and they helped, they used to help them in their role as ambassadors. Here's an interesting challenge for you, probably not expecting today, but I do want to challenge you. If you'd like to ask me questions about it later, please feel free, but you know what? I've got the mic, so <laughs> If your entire CD collection is Christian worship music, or even the vast majority of it, it's not a badge of honor. I want to say this with grace, if I can, but you're probably going to limit your effectiveness as an ambassador for Jesus and his kingdom. If I asked you what you've been reading lately, you think, I know what you mean. This Philip Yancey book, this book, this paperback, Christian paperback, Christian paperback. You can list me 10 Christian paperbacks. All good. I'm not having to go really good, helpful for us. But that's what you can list. I don't think that's a good thing. What novels have you read by important secular writers recently? What's your knowledge of the classics like? What's your knowledge of the modern writers that are shaping culture today? In academia, have you shied away from what's going on there and reverted to Christian pop psychology that actually has just got a, maybe it's published by Kingsway or something, but it's being looked at from people outside who know what they're on about. They've got no agenda against Christianity. It's going, you guys don't know what you're talking about. It's a challenge for us. Do we engage or do we retreat from these things? Might sound strange as an application, but you know what, guys? We are called to the world. We can't get out of it. It's our ambassadorial post. We've been positioned here. Yes, we're cut from a different cloth. Yes, we're aliens and strangers, but this is where we're stationed. We need to love the people of the world. We need to listen to the people of the world. We need to understand the people of the world. I just want to finish with this. Uh, Oliver Miles is another British ambassador in the late 20th century. And he wrote an article for The Guardian in which he relayed some of the things he'd done as an ambassador. And for those of you who are after this role, this is going to whet your appetite even more. These are some of the things that Oliver Miles got up to. He, uh, he got proper loos installed in the Yemen for a different ambassadorial visit. Okay? He passed on secret messages in Luxembourg. He got a British lorry driver sentence commuted in Saudi Arabia. He secured the release of British spies in Libya. He led seminars in Russia. He stopped the Greeks declaring war on Turkey. All part of a day's work for a British ambassador. And uh, He commented on these exploits, and he commented also on uh, modern ambassadors. And he said this at the end of the article. He said, it's worth mentioning that of these examples, only the Luxembourg business... I, wish, I hope I had a job that I could one day say, the Luxembourg business. But anyway, uh, only the Luxembourg business was done mainly in English. I was dismayed to learn recently that neither the Middle East director in the Foreign Office nor two of our ambassadors in important Gulf countries speak Arabic. Can I ask you, are you fluent in the language of the kingdom of the world? (laughs) See the link? It's a picture. Oh, yeah, okay. Are you you fluent in the language of the kingdom of the world? Okay, who understands that picture? I think one of the more interesting films in our culture of the last year. Are you fluent in the language of the kingdom of the world? 
If not, what are you going to do to learn to speak the language better? It's part of our calling as ambassadors. We cannot shy away from this when the stakes are so high. So to finish then, how do citizens of the kingdom of God live in the world? We're to live as ambassadors for our king in foreign and hostile territory. I just want to make absolutely clear you understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we consume unthinkingly everything that's out there. Some of you are like, yeah, I've been waiting for this message forever. Matt Redman, in your face, okay? <laughs> I'd want to, uh, amen. I'd want to urge the amen some caution here. <laughs> because listen, that kingdom of the world is as interested or more interested in getting us to join it as our kingdom is in getting them to join us. And if we're not wise to that, you think, yeah, let's go, you will come a cropper. Great wisdom is called for here. But you know what? He that is in us is greater than he that's in the world. We have an urgent mission. It's a mission for all of us who've been reconciled by Jesus, who've been transferred into the domain of darkness, the kingdom of God. And to do it, we've got to know our king and his heart for the world. And we must also foster a profound knowledge and understanding of this world we've been sent into. I'm going to pray for you.